Buenos días, buenas tardes, buenas noches, señores y señores. I am Guilherme Paturi, the one of the co-hosts for this fourth season of El Cafecito today for our fifth, is it fifth or sixth? I think it's our fifth episode of the season. It's a pleasure, as always, to be here today with two very special guests alongside our usual three co-hosts. And I'll start this morning by saying hi to Raquel Serrano. How are you this cold morning, Raquel? Hola, hello, Hugo. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, this is going to be a special episode, and I can't get started to um, talk about it with you guys. Absolutely. It's going to be wonderful. And I'll say hello to one of our guests, Ana Anigera. How are you doing today? Hi, everyone. I am doing amazing because I'm not in Toronto and it's warm where I am. Um, and just a side note, I also go by Anna Carneiro. That was absolutely my fault. I apologize for the surname confusion. And with that, I'll say hello to our final guest, Andrea. How are you this morning? Hi, hola. I'm really jealous of Anna for being in Brazil right now, but I'm very happy for the invite. Thank you so much. And I'm very excited for the conversation. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to have you here. And finally, for our last regular co-host, Jose Alfredo Jimenez, good morning. Good morning to everyone. I just want to say that I'm also extremely jealous of Anna, as I just recently got back to Toronto and I was actually shocked. Even though it's on my first winter here, just always shocking how cold it gets here. It's amazing. <laughs> For sure. This has been one of the worst winters. This has been definitely my, my worst winter here since 2018. And then 2018, 2019, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that's entirely off topic. So with that, uh, I will commence. So I'll introduce our topic. So today we're talking about environmental crises in Latin America, talking about some environmental disasters across the continent in Peru, Ecuador, and Brazil. And with that, I think we should start with, with Peru. Isn't that right, uh, Andrea? There was an oil leak, and I, I'd love to hear more about that. Yes, so uh, just a bit of context. I am actually from Peru, my family is there. Uh, so during this past month, we had uh, one of the, uh, the government has said one of the biggest ecological disasters in the country because of an oil spill that happened in January 15th in the coastal uh, area of Peru, specifically in Northern Lima. Uh, where the capital is located. Uh, so very quick context, uh, we know that there was an eruption uh, in a volcano in Tonga that caused uh, different tsunami alerts in the coastal areas of South America in countries such as Chile and Ecuador and Peru as well. But uh, very interesting to see the differences. Peru actually didn't, um, uh, didn't mention any tsunami alerts in the country, even though there were some anomalies and there was not necessarily a national alert. But what happened, uh, our coastal uh, area in Peru uh, is an important area for oil dischargement. So transportation of oil is very current there. And unfortunately, there was an oil spill in the refinery La Pampilla in Ventanilla uh, from Repsol. Uh, at the beginning, it was said to be only a 600 barrel oil spill, but uh, this, that was a complete uh, misinformation given by Repsol. And the government has actually said that it was around 12,000 uh, 12, barrels that were spilled into uh, one of the most important ecological areas of the capital. And this oil spill has expanded to more or less 140 kilometers north and in, in different beaches and a lot of places and ecological areas have been closed. And speci specifically, the local fish fishing economy has completely collapsed collapse because of this disaster. That's kind of a quick recap of what's been going on. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting to me that Repsol is actually a Spanish company, isn't it? So it's not even a Peruvian company. So it's uh, and we're, this seems like to be a common thread. I'm sure we're going to touch on this later. It's it's a thread of foreign companies that cause environmental disasters across the company and are not held responsible most of the times. Um, and that seems well. It's hard to overstate how how the effect of that for Peru's coast. Um, and I wanted to ask if there's any estimates of the environmental uh, impact itself, so uh, on the fauna or the flora of the coastal region. Yeah, I mean, because Repsol's uh, response has been uh, very changing, like since the beginning, they were not really uh, truthful of how many, how much the disaster was. The government has as well delayed a lot of uh, analysis and research of the disaster itself, but different organizations have said that. Um, for example, more than 40% of the animals that ha they have been able to um, to rescue, they did not survive because the oil uh, was so entrenched in their own bodies. So we know that there has been lots of specific endangered uh, species within the coast. And specifically, we have seen an increase of migratory birds in the area, which the coast of, the coast of Peru is very important, specifically for those routes in, with migratory uh, birds. Um, as we continue to discover that there has been even second spills after these first ones, we do not actually know how large this environmental disaster is going to be. Uh, so definitely some, something we need to continue looking and definitely uh, I think the transfer, transparency of information and accountability has played a huge role on not knowing exactly what's happening. Because Repsol, the, the first thing that they do was to claim kind of the blame card. In Spanish, we call it yo no fui fuetete. The first response was not really going and putting hands on the ground and getting the oil, but it was to blame others for the situation. So, I mean, it's very, I I have not been able to find very specific statistics, but we can see that much in images and how people are really suffering. Yeah, and also, what do you think about the, is it, is it a typical reaction from the, from the, this multinational corporations that cause environmental damages? Because as we see, um, a spokesman for La, La Pampilla, which is a Repsol refinery, he said that they were technically not responsible for the spill and they were blaming the Peruvian Navy. So do you guys think this is a common reaction from these corporations as soon as these environmental damages happen? I mean, it, I think it's a very tricky um, relationship just because um, when it comes to mining, uh, we, we will always see these um, like phantom image of the government. Once a transnational corporation comes, uh, the government kind of just backs away. So it is kind of a, a transnational corporation getting a lot of, of pressure on, on a lot of things. Um, but um, I mean, in this case, there have been evidence shown that uh, there was alert mechanisms from Repsol that were not working. So it was, they, they didn't as a company couldn't know when the spill happened, how much oil was spilled. So in that case, I would say, I mean, yeah, there has to be some accountability for transnational corporations, specifically multimillionaire transnational corporations that the first response is to make the victims go and clean the beaches. So I think that's one of the most important things that we need to, to emphasize. A lot of the time when transnational corporations come, they treat uh, these damages as transactions and make their own population, the victims, pay and go and clean things. 
So um, while it's important to be accountable as a transnational organization, the government as well uh, has some responsibility of not doing any responses when these bills happen or don't having any knowledge on how to, to treat the responses or what are the legal implications for the transnational corporations when this happens. So I think it's very tricky to really uncover uh, these routes of who's responsible, who should do what, but definitely um, I think that a common threat is the victim is always playing the part of, of the savior in this part, like taking care of the environment. So yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm going into all of the ways, but it is a very inter interesting question to keep in mind as we see these disasters in all of Latin America. On that note, what was the response? Like, what was the response of the Lima society, but also in general, what was the response of uh, the Peruvians towards these, this issue? Because I guess there are a lot of mixed feelings. Many people support uh, mining and, and oil extraction. Others do not, but also just by seeing, I guess, the, 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 the thing that you can see, the pictures of, of the environmental disaster, the thing that you can see, literally the oil, um, in contaminating the water, I guess that really um, uh, had a lot of attention from from different groups in in Peru. So I was wondering what was their reaction towards this specific oil spill. Yeah, I mean, civil society I think was key on uh, putting pressure that there needs to be a, a, a mitigation towards this problem and try to resolve all of the ecological damage that has been done. Even people going with with shovels from their houses and as well fishermen were the first one in the scene. But it was very dangerous because these have very toxic material. And so while a lot of pressure has been put in in civil society because no one was doing anything, a lot of people were as well endangered in, in, in this situation. One thing that um, I saw social media exploded, everyone was sharing different uh, posts in their stories about the disaster. Then a campaign to collect hair happened, which it's been a, a bit controversial. The government has actually said that uh, we need really, really large volumes of hair because hair acts uh, as an absorbent for oil, but the the, um, the the amount of campaigns that were happening were not enough, so actually the hair could cause more contamination than actual mitigation. But there are still campaigns collecting hair that no one really knows where that hair is going to. So um, it's very interesting how different organizations act, uh, but definitely it's, 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 I know the fishermen are constantly doing marches and protests to Repsol, but we, we, we're talking of such a toxic uh, material. Not everyone can just go and clean clean the beaches, but definitely, I think one reflection that I get is that, I mean, in the pandemic, there has been 14 oil spills in the Amazonas, in the, in the Peruvian Amazonas, um, and no one has really paid so much attention in, to, in comparison to an oil spill that happened in the capital. So I think it, it reflect, we can reflect a lot about centralization of response, centralization of social media, and as well how our indigenous communities, which are the most affected by these oil spills, are many times ignored and forgotten. And that is an important point you touched there, Andrea, that I, I definitely want to focus on. When these sort of disasters happen in, in major urban centers or close to major urban centers, they tend to get a lot more of attention than they do if they happen in isolated, usually native land. And I think this problem is very pronounced and even more pronounced in Latin America, of course, but also in countries like Uruguay or Peru, where there's a massive concentration in the capital city. So I think that's quite important to note that it's I, I don't think I'm extrapolating when I say that because it happened in Lima it was given a lot of attention. The same way that if something happened in Montevideo, it would give you given a lot of attention just because of the massive population concentration in the capital cities of those countries. Uh, and with that, my final question, 
actually, before I ask my final question, I see that Anna wants to speak. Please, Anna, go ahead. Yeah, I actually wanted to jump in to that idea that big urban centers get all the attention when they're victimized by disasters, because it makes me think of a concept that I learned recently um, called sacrifice zones. So when a disaster happens in a remote location or a location that has less visibility, it's considered more acceptable because that area has been sort of deemed okay and a necessary sacrifice for quote unquote progress or economic growth. So I think it's very deliberate that it doesn't get as much coverage or support and it's just sad. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And and just to add to my previous point, um, I just searched this up. So Lima has almost a third of the population of Peru just concentrated there. So that's my point. So the, in, in Portuguese, we have a term for this. It's called macrocefalia urbana. I don't know if it's the same in Spanish, but it just speaks to this fact of when a country concentrates so many people in one, only, one uh, city. Uh, but uh, my last question about all of this is how has been the government response? Because after years of being governed by the right, or maybe even extreme right, Peru has a unequivocally and uh, uncontestable leftist president now. And I wanted to know how has Pedro Castillo's response been to this crisis? I think that how I can summarize uh, the president's response, not only to the uh, ecological disaster, but a lot of different uh, social um, uh, conflict that has happened is no response, to be honest. The response was very delayed. Um, they took a long time to even uh, put a number to the legal con consequences that were going to uh, be given to, re to Repsol. And even though the, the president did make an appearance on the scene uh, with all of the fishermen, uh, picking up a bird, uh, a dead bird, a dead bird uh, that was contaminated in oil. Uh, it seemed more like an image of, look at me, I'm here, than a real response. What is being given to the communities are very, very mediocre food baskets uh, that do not really uh, encapsulate the real disaster that is going on and the, the, uh, the, the horrible economic loss and the, the collapse of the local economy that it's been going on. Um, and as well, I think uh, together with Repsol, the first response was to call the civil society to do something about it. Um, unfortunately, uh, we changed of ministers uh, this past week and the new minister of environment does not really have any type of experience in this field. And I think that that is a clear uh, image of how the government is really acting to these disasters. And uh, there's no really no, there's really no one with real experience as how to deal with um, with very dynamic and, and and very difficult situations environmentally that Peru is really um, facing right now. So unfortunately, there's not been much, and and I hope I hope uh, it changes. Absolutely, it absolutely should change, and the response by the Castillo administration can be said to be nothing short of a disappointment, at least to me, who expected that that to be a transformative presidency and perhaps. Maybe not so much, um, but with that, does anyone else have any questions, comments about the Peruvian uh, case of the oil spill? Seeing that there aren't any, we will move on to our, the second case study for this episode, which we're going to talk about Ecuador, where there was also a oil spill, but instead of in the ocean, this has been in the Amazon rainforest. Is that correct, Raquel? 
Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess this is the, the second largest oil spill in Latin America. Peru uh, was the, the first case, and then on January 28th, there was a massive oil spill in the Ecuadorian Amazon, in the locality of Piedra Fina in the Napo province. That's um, the eastern side of, of, of Ecuador. Um, as a private crude pipeline ruptured, leaking more than um, 6,300 barrels in the Cayambe Coca Ecological Reserve. Um, as we know, the Ecuadorian Amazon is home of the greatest biodiversity on, on the planet. There are so many endangered species um, that live there, but as well as many, many indigenous communities. And this um, oil spill has uh, affected um, the, the environment, but also, as I said, the indigenous communities. And it's important to know that um, these, this oil spill is just the second, second one that takes place in the Ecuadorian Amazon in the past two years. And it's just, I guess, just to get us started on this conversation, and this is something that we saw same in Peru, is how prevalent these, these oil spills are and how often they occur. Um, and I think this just calls for more environmental regulation and environmental policies that need to be put in place and actually implemented because um, as these mining and, and oil uh, extractive activities continue to take place, uh, the environment continues to be damaged and indigenous communities continue to be affected their water sources contaminated and their food sources are also polluted. So yeah, I think it's just a, a quick note on, on what happened and I'm pretty sure Jose Fredo um, will be able to comment more on, on this uh, case. Yes, I think it's also really important to highlight how the region where the oil spill occurred um, ended up polluting the, the Coca River which is basically one of the largest in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And it's a very important source for many riverbank communities because this case is almost a perfect contrast with what happened in Peru. It's in a more uh, isolated place, I guess. And then the people from this communities are more dependent on, the, on, on, on nature, I'd say to survive and to, to gather food, but most importantly, to get a source of fresh water which has been one of the biggest concerns from this population since the oil spill happened. And also one last thing that I wanted to highlight was that the cause of the oil spill was that um, recently there have been very heavy rains and they caused uh, many landslides and some rocks were falling in the area adjacent to Piedra Fina, which is where the pipeline lies. And unfortunately, one of these rocks ended up hitting the pipeline and then the oil started to leak and then and then, yes, it started to pollute um, the whole ecosystem. And unfortunately, it ended up reaching the, the Coca River area and polluting the, the source of water and, and a lot of food for the local communities. And yes, I think that's pretty much what I want to highlight to get more to give more context to our audience to understand the, the effects, the negative impacts of this oil spill. And, and I, I think it's important that this is said as well. Uh, you touched on this, Raquel, that um, again, this is a clear example of how the natives are being ignored completely despite this affecting them the most. Um, and I think this can be brought back even to the election that you Ecuador had in, in 2021 as 
I was just checking this to, to confirm, but yeah, Jakupedi is the candidate that was more representative of, of native rights, and perhaps this idea of native sovereignty was defeated in the first round. But the Ecuadorian Amazon, an Amazon region, voted en masse uh, for, for that candidate. And I didn't know this, and I just saw that they actually migrated that vote to Guillermo Lasso in the second round, which is surprising because Guillermo Lasso isn't the candidate who would put natives first in any way, shape, or form, really. And I think this disaster has highlighted that. Yeah, I think in terms of politics, there's uh, a lot of polarization in, in this topic. Uh, I mean, Lasso, in his campaign, and just in the past few weeks, he's announced that um, he's interested in like extracting more oil, oil from the Amazon, right? So there are so many indigenous communities that are against this. There, uh, in fact, there's a a letter being uh, surrounded, being uh, promoted in different in social media um, sites to get signatures from people from all over the world to ask. Uh, the Supreme Court of Ecuador to, sorry, the Constitutional Court of Ecuador to give indigenous peoples the right to choose, um, the right to say no. I think that's especially like what they're asking for, the right to say no to um, these extractive projects, the right to, to have a, a say in these uh, decision-making processes that take place in their traditional lands. But it's also the right to nature. And this is important to highlight because in the Ecuadorian constitution, it says that we are one of the only countries that has nature, that has a given rights to nature. So we see these um, so many things taking place in the sense that the, the government, Alasso's uh, government, Alasso's presidency, they're trying to um, extract more, more oil from the Amazon. But then at the same time, we see different indigenous communities, land defenders that are uh, resisting these uh, extractive projects. But then, of course, I mean, um, the I think the, the narrative that is being used by so many, and not only the government, but also private companies in the Amazon to get the, the people to vote for these type of projects and to vote for these type of, of, of press or candidates is the economic opportunity for the people there, right? So it's like these false promises that, yes, we're going to give you jobs, yes, we're going to give you, there's going to be development in the area, but then at what cost? And when uh, oil spills like this one take place and then people are left with, with nothing and when uh, corporations are not being held accountable, then all those false promises are just uh, put in evidence, right? Um, and I think it's it's also important to highlight here that the the, the two oil spills, the one in, in April of 2020 and the one that took place last Saturday are just similar as in the Peruvian case, just one, two of the biggest one, right? But there's in fact data that, that shows that um, an oil spill occurs in, in, Ecuador, in the Ecuador Amazon every other day on average with over 80%, sorry, an oil spill occurs in, in Ecuador every other day on average with over 80% occurring in, in, in the Amazon. So these are just some, some statistics that help us evidence that these oil spills are very common. Um, most of them are underreported and it's not that indigenous communities don't want to put this um, in the spotlight, it's that uh, the, the media, uh, politicians and corporations are trying to cover up these issues that 
end up affecting the the Amazon, the, the like diversity that exists there, but also the many many indigenous peoples that that live there. Yeah, Rick, I think that's really interesting how you pointed out how often these oil spills occur because I remember. I honestly don't remember having heard from any other oil spill in Ecuador in the past few months. And uh, recently I was back in Ecuador, I just got back here to Toronto a few, uh, like a week ago. And while I was there, I remember that this oil spill that just happened really went viral because of a few videos that showcased the actual pipeline leaking out uh, petroleum into the into the Amazon. So I think, I think yeah, unfortunately, it's really hard to bring up all these other oil spills into the spotlight because because if there's not a video like that that goes viral that people see something visually or see someone being impacted directly it's really hard for for them to i don't know if if to care or to to bring up attention to it and yeah that's really sad and one last thing that i want to point out is it's like there's clearly a big conflict of interest because Ecuador is 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 the home for the biggest biodiversity in, in the planet and therefore should have should have a certain degree of of what's the word they they should take care of it they should take care of the biodiversity it's it, it's, it's their right to do it and and unfortunately we can see that one of Ecuador's biggest exports it, it's petroleum so it's also a very big source of of, of money for the for the economy so I don't know. I really hope that we can figure out some way to to put these both interests in in manage them in a way that that's good for the environment and that can be balanced and sustainable into the future. Yeah, for sure. Anna, I'm seeing you. You want to comment, yeah. jump in on the discussion? This might be a bit of a tangent, but I was thinking as the conversation was going about why those oil spills are not as questioned or opposed in countries in Latin America. And I kind of wanted to bring up the legacy of the pink tide um, because we often go for corporations or neoliberals and say, oh, you're money hungry and that's why this is happening. But the left actually had a role in this in Latin America in the sense that when the pink tide happened, these extractive activities sort of gain a new importance because they were used to fund social programs. So before questioning those projects was sort of questioning the neoliberal paradigm of profit and, you know, uh, subjugating Latin America for other countries' interests. But then when they became the source of revenue for social programs, questioning those projects became almost questioning social programs. Uh, so social movements lost a lot of their support and government when this relationship sort of started. Uh, so it's something I think we should keep in mind as we have this sort of new or renewed left leftist wave in Latin America to, to keep questioning those projects regardless of what they're used for. Absolutely, and I think that's incredibly important. This idea of this progressive extractivism you're bringing up is is it's so difficult, right? Because from one side, obviously, the, the environmental and natural impacts were massive. So even in Brazil, a good example is when President Dilma Rousseff constructed a massive dam in, I believe, it was the centuries of the country, 
uh, drowning protected conservation areas in water, while uh, that dam created energy, affordable energy for hundreds of thousands, the environmental impact can't be overstated. So it's such a difficult discussion. And I don't want in any way, shape or form appear to say that, oh, I am defending this because I'm a communist or whatever, but just because um, it is difficult because from one side, you're extending aid and programs to people who would not have their opportunities. Otherwise, the state needs to fund that somehow. So the way that those, these, these pink tide governments did uh, got captured this funding was through that but of course Anna, you're absolutely right like at the same time you're destroying the environment and if that just, wasn't please go ahead i'm just gonna go ahead and be the commie in the conversation but i think one important thing that could have provided a lot of funding and was not even considered as well for distribution uh, we have massive wealth concentration all across latin america and i know that's kind of a pipe dream but I'm just saying, you know, the option is there and it was not considered. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, an interesting conversation we should definitely have um, in a future episode because I think it's a bit of a tangent. But uh, Andrea, please go ahead. I can see you you're raising your hand. I, I thought the idea of progressive extractivism is so important when we talk about it. Um, how new Latin governments are now as well, again, taking uh, power in Latin America. And I think that uh, the era that Anna just mentioned can be clearly seen in a lot of legislation in the country. I think I'm, I'm gonna point back to one of the things that Raquel said, that a government such as Ecuador and Bolivia actually put rights uh, of nature in their constitutions and legislation. But a lot of these focuses when it comes to human rights and nature rights are about access. And you'll see a lot in even the most uh, said to be progressive constitution, it's about the access to nature. And when it's about like, for example, free uh, prior and free from consent for indigenous communities, for them to say no, it's many times about access. And we con like, we're continuously uh, um, ignoring other types of relationships that we can have with nature, either being a spiritual relation, like creating relationships around nature and how we actually benefit for just knowing that nature exists, a lot of psychological and benefits that we have of just having nature and going back to a backyard and having, knowing that the Amazon, uh, the rainforest exists. So I think that they're continuously, they needs to be a change in legislation and how we, we see nature, because even though we continue to add words like nature or Water Act protection, we're not really grasping the real problem, is that we see everything as a commodity. And I just wanted to point that out, uh, specifically with Ecuador and Bolivia are great examples of where you can see that nature are giving rights. But definitely, I think we need to change the perspective of how are we really understanding our relationship with nature. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And just the, this rights of nature that you brought up and Raquel brought up as well is super important. So actually reading directly from the Constitution of Ecuador, Chapter 7, Article 71 says that nature or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its life cycles, structures, functions and evolutionary processes. All persons, communities, peoples, and nations can call upon public authorities to enforce the rights of nature. And I think this is super important because say what you will about Rafael Correa, say what you will about his successor, uh, Lenny Moreno, but this is absolutely groundbreaking. And it's such a shame that it isn't respected. As Raquel is saying, it's here in the constitution of the country that the natives and the indigenous communities have the right to take it upon the constitution of the court to stop more oil extractivism in uh, the Amazon, because it is disrespecting these rights of nature. Uh, although I doubt that the Constitutional Court will halt Lasso's intentions. 
Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how how that was one of Correa's legacies that that was actually good. But then also, I think it's really. I think we should also discuss a little bit about how government reaction in these scenarios could be. I, I don't. I don't know how to phrase it properly, but I think it's such a such an easy way to like greenwash their brand and and claim to be helping the environment. Um, I mean, I I don't really know how was the reaction in, in Ecuador, Raquel. Like, how how did the government end up reacting to this recent oil spill? Because I remember, um, I remember even going back, one of these massive campaigns that happened during uh, Correa's presidency. I think it was La Mano Negra, La Mano Sucia de Chevron, or Chevron's uh, dirty hand. Which okay, just for some quick context, was a uh, Chevron was um, extracting. Uh, oil in Ecuador, and after they left, they, correct me if I'm wrong, Raquel, but after they left, they didn't do uh, the proper um, cleaning up process, I guess, and ended up leaving like thousands of, of dirty pools of oils in the, in the Amazon, and then and then basically the, the campaign was that Correa went, and then he like dipped his hand, this, his palm into the, the crude oil, and then he, he took a, a few photos of it, and it really went viral, so... So yeah, I think that was a really quick context I wanted to give. But then Raquel, um, what do you think about the government's reaction to this recent oil spill? Has it been uh, in line with previous reactions or have they done anything new here? I mean, they, they did say that they are planning to quote unquote hold accountable um, OCP, the, the, the private company that owns this pipeline. It's uh, Oleoducto de Crudos Pesados, that's the name. Uh, but in reality, like what what's going to happen? I mean, indigenous peoples are still um, waiting for a decision to be made based on the oil spill that took place in April of 2020. So, like two years later, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen. What's going to happen with OCP uh, in that oil spill was between um, pipelines that belong to OCP, the same uh, private company that is responsible for this spill, but also an Ecuadorian. Um, an Ecuadorian uh, company, Sote. So like, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with those companies. Two years later, we're still waiting and we're probably going to keep waiting to see like real decisions and like real justice taking place, you know? Um, I think in in a more immediate response, uh, and this was also made by uh, OCP, was to provide water and like food can for, for people that were affected. But to be honest, like, these are just band-aids to, to the issue. Like, yeah, you can provide like a month, a month full of like water bottles, but that's not gonna be enough when like your entire water source is polluted. Um, when you cannot even fish, when you cannot even like use the water for for like hygiene activities, you know? Um, the, the response is, in my opinion, never going to be enough. And that's coming from the, seeing like the responses from the government, but also from these private companies that just like try to, as, as Alana said at the beginning, these, um, uh, the zones, what was the term that you used? The oh, sacrifice zones. Yeah, the sacrifice zones. The Amazon is the sacrifice zone of, of Ecuador. And like, we are going to keep like sacrificing it the, the but as much as we claim that we are so biodiverse and like there's so many species and like yay nature 
these are just some of the, the, the strategies being used to keep extracting, to keep putting the economy first, and also to keep facilitating private corporations, which are usually foreign corporations, giving them access to the Amazon, giving them access to traditional territories. And this is not only, I guess, this oil spill, and just to conclude the, the, the Ecuadorian case, this oil spill is just added to extensive list of environmental disasters and environmental harmful activities that take place in the Amazon. And that includes illegal logging, that includes mining and oil extraction um, that continue to pollute, pollute the Amazon and its biodiversity and that the many, many indigenous communities that live along these compromised areas. Um, the long lasting damage that could potentially have from like these oil spill, like we don't know, it could be 20, it could be 25 years. Um, yeah, I heard one of the community members brought up that the effects um, are going to probably last well into 20 plus years after this oil spill. Yeah, and yeah sure even though, that, sorry. That, that, I'm just saying that we need to make sure that if it's like 25 years, how are those indigenous communities that are affected? How is yes, the area yes, that has exactly. been uh, affected? How are, how are we going to um, incentivize uh, remediation, but also long-lasting um, sustainability for them after this happens. You know? Yeah, it feels like yeah. all these companies are just coming up with quick fixes for the short term, just to like look good in the media right after the oil spill happens, and then once everyone forgets about it, they're just going to be like not really helping the communities anymore because the solution should not only involve oh we're going to give them bottles of water for like a month. It should really look into helping the communities in into the long term because these effects are going to be felt by them for well over 20 years. Even though uh, the OCP company that, that caused the oil spill, they have claimed to to it says OCP claims to have recovered oil amounted to about 84 percent of the total that leaked, which was collected in they said large basins and. Yeah, even though they can claim they, they, they collect all this oil, the effects are going to be felt well into the long run and the solution should therefore tackle these issues in the long run. Yeah, and just uh, also a reminder that that is also in the Ecuadorian constitution that if there is damage caused to the environment by any person or corporation, the state has to repair it to the state of how it was previously. Um, so this is all... Uh, not wanting to get too much into constitutional law of Ecuador, this is in the constitution, and the fact that it isn't respected is absolutely preposterous. Absolutely. So this was a very interesting discussion. I'm actually coming from the future, as this episode was extremely long. We actually covered a whole section on Brazil, but since it was so long, I we have decided to cut the episode in two. So, we will end the first part of the environmental disasters in Latin America episode here today after this, this amazing discussion on Peru and Ecuador. And we will come back in two weeks' times for the part number two, where we will talk about environmental disasters in Brazil, focusing on the Amazon uh, rainforest fires and the collapsing dams of Mariana and Brumadinho. Thank you once again for joining us today and see you soon. And please listen to part two. Hasta luego. Ciao.